But if you look at Hebrews chapter 10, I just want to read this portion of Scripture for us. And I want to begin in uh, verse uh, 1, actually. I was going to begin in verse 8, but it's also good. We're just going to read it. (laughs) So follow along in your Bibles as I read out of Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in the sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. But he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does, not, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice of, uh, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord's, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And it tells us right there in verse 10, the reason Christ came, the reason Christ was born. It says, by That will we have been sanctified by God's will. It was God's will that Christ come, be born, take on the form of a human being, yet remain fully God, live 30-some years here on this earth, and then die for the sins of the world, and then be raised on the third day in victory over sin and death. Look over in John chapter 18. Another verse, just as a way of introduction to our account of this in Luke. But John chapter 18, verse 37, he's before Pilate, and it says, Pilate therefore said unto him, Are you a king then? He asked him point blank, Are you a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. Then he says this, To this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth hears my voice. And then if you look at John 12, verse 27, Jesus is speaking. He says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? 12, 27. Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. When Christ was born, he was born with a purpose. And the purpose was one day that he would die for the sins of the world. Now, as we have hopefully survived Turkey 
cranberry sauce. We, you know, at our house, we had the turkey and dinner, and we had everything, and we were making a big deal about the cranberry sauce at the beginning of the dinner. You know, we can't wait to get the cranberry sauce. And I asked my wife, is it cold? Oh, no, it's on the counter. Oh, we'll stick it in the freezer. Well, you know what happened. We forgot about the cranberry sauce. We got done with the whole meal, and finally somebody says, you know what? We didn't eat the cranberry sauce. <laughs> I thought, uh-oh. So I ripped it out of the, the freezer there, and... Uh, Gave it to that person, and hopefully they enjoyed it at home. (laughs) But, you know, every year we go through this whole thing of of Thanksgiving. You work up to Thanksgiving, you have the big meal, and then comes the, the, now it's Gray Thursday, and then Black Friday, and then you got Cyber Monday coming around the corner. It's just all this craziness. You know, and on the first, very first Christmas, just kind of like today in a lot of ways, the earth was oblivious to all that was happening. It was just simply oblivious. But you know what? Heaven wasn't. Because God had a purpose in sending his son. Think about it. The angels were waiting with kind of an eager anticipation to be able to break forth that praise and worship and adoration at the birth of Jesus Christ. And in his proclamation, the angel told Joseph, you remember what he said, that Jesus would save his people from their sins. And you know, throughout the life of Christ... This was the, probably the foremost thing in his mind amongst everything else. Uh, he was born to die on a cross, a cruel death. And that important issue, I think, of Christmas is it's not so much that Jesus came to earth. I mean, we celebrate that. But I think even more important is why he came. Why did Jesus come? He knew that he was born to die. Um, you know, there was no salvation in his coming or in his birth. That didn't accomplish our salvation Uh, His sinless life, he lived 30-some years here on earth, perfect in every way, sinless. But you know what? That in and of itself couldn't provide anybody any redemptive forgiveness at all. His example, when you look at the example of Christ, it was flawless. It was great. But even though as great as it was, it could never rescue any man from the slavery that held them in sin. And even his teachers, teachings, you know, you hear people talk about Jesus. Oh, he was a great teacher. He was just a great teacher. And he was. Magnificent teacher. Brilliant. In so many different ways. You just look at how he interacts with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. And just about the time they think they got him cornered, somehow he gets out of it. Through words, a lot of times. But even his teachings, as great as his truths were and his wisdom, and it was never revealed to man before to that extent while he was here on earth, even that could not save us from our sins. Uh, Romans 6.23 tells us that there was a price that needed to be paid for our sins. It says that the wages of sin is what? Death. There's a, there's a payment, there's a wage. When you go to job, when you go to your job and you work and you, you put in a, a week's work, hopefully at the end of the week you get paid. You expect to get paid. If you didn't get paid, I don't think you'd work there very long. Well, the wages of our sin eventually will catch up with us. And eventually that wage is death. And you know what? The Bible says that it was only Jesus that could pay that price. Jesus came to earth to do many things, beloved. He came to reveal God to mankind. John 14, 9 uh, says that he that has seen me has seen the Father. He came even to teach truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He came to fulfill the law. He came to offer his kingdom. He came to show us, to give an example of how to live, to bring peace, to reveal even the depth of God's love for us. But don't ever miss the point. The ultimate purpose in Christ coming to this earth was that he might die. Very clearly. 
John the Baptist even cried out when he saw Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 proclaims Christ. It says, the, slam, the, lame, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And as an echo to the angel's proclamation that he shall save his people from their sins. And unfortunately, in today's world, in today's society, that's the side of the story that we seem to either forget about or we simply choose to ignore. But I want you to remember as you think about those little tiny hands, you know, you look at somebody like uh, uh, Sam and Panita's little baby, little daughter, her little tiny hands and her little feet. And when you look at a little infant that way, you have to remember that Jesus once was that little, little tiny, harmless little baby that Mary held in her arms. And yet, somehow, those little tiny feet and those little tiny hands one day, they were formed with the, the intention of being pierced by nails being driven through them and affixing his body to that cross on Golgotha. That warm little baby <laughs> wrapped in swaddling clothes as we know it in scripture to describe one day would have a, a spear thrust through his side. And that gentle heart that was so filled with love that pumped his blood, the blood of the Son of God, would one day be broken to provide for you and me an everlasting life. Jesus clearly was born to die. And in the shadow of the manger, you see the cross. And I don't think you can truly celebrate Christmas apart from, as we're going to celebrate here today, the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can't truly know the joys of Christmas without a, a personal relationship with the Savior. That's just the way it is. Turn over to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. If you have an office at work, you probably have pictures and most of us probably have pictures of our family somewhere in that office. Um, now, I don't have those pictures of Crystal and Will and the grandkids and other family members there in my office because I forget what my family looks like. You know, that's not why I have them up there. Um, it's not so much the idea of giving me information, okay, but it's to touch my heart. When I look at those photos, I miss them. I say, oh, man, I can't wait till they get out here for Christmas. Or, boy, I can't wait to get home and see my wife at lunchtime or dinner or whatever. And, and those pictures are there as a, as a reminder to my heart that, you know what, there's, there's a, a love relationship here with these individuals. And they're not uh, there to remind me of, of, you know, that Amika has black hair or, or, you know, Gabby has brown eyes or green eyes, whatever color they are. I'm colorblind. But it's, you know, it's important that, that we understand they're there to remind us of the love that we share. And when you stop and you think about this table that we come before, the Lord's table, the communion table, that's what it is. It's a picture. And it's not just to give us information, but it's to remind us. It's a snapshot of Jesus himself, and he causes us, calls us to be, remember, be remembering this communion table. And he says to pause and to look at it as often as you can. Because he doesn't want us to forget for the reason which he came into this world. And we should remember that great love that he has for us, supremely shown to us on the cross. Um, and hopefully it will fill us with that hope that we spoke about this Advent Sunday, with that desire to see him again when he comes back for us. Um, you know, you have to ask the question... You know, the one, one thing the Bible clearly says is that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back one day. And that should cause us to look forward to meeting him. And you have to ask yourself, this morning even, are you ready to meet him? Is there anything in your life maybe that needs to be dealt with 
before the bride, you meet the, the bridegroom face to face. And that should touch our hearts. We should cry out to God and thank him for what he has given to us in Christ. And so this is really a, a snapshot um, of Christ's sacrifice. It's a reminder for us to remember all that he's done for us. A lot of churches practice communion every week. Some churches practice it once a month. Some churches practice it a couple times a year. Um, I think the Bible's pretty clear that we should do it as often as we can. It doesn't have to just be Sunday morning. It could be Wednesday night. It could be whenever. But you have to remember that that's what he said. And I think it's important for us to remember that, you know, I mean, in our church, we do it on the first Sunday of the month. And when asked, well, why do you do that? The answer basically is, well, if you do it every week, it kind of just becomes routine. You know, it just becomes meaningless. It becomes a ritual. Um, when you stop and you think about that, uh, the, the church in Acts seemed to gather weekly, it says, in Acts 27, to break bread. Uh, now, they had a whole meal going on and everything, but I think part of it was remembering the cross of Christ, remembering the sacrifice of Christ. But I think that, you know, even reading your Bible every day can become ritualistic, right? And yet we'd never say, oh, just read it once a week or once a month because, you know, you don't want it to become a ritual, a meaningless ritual. Uh, so, you know, sometimes, you know, you wonder what, what the, uh, the wisdom in that is. But I think the idea is, is very clear that we should not neglect coming to the Lord's Supper. And uh, whether that's in a Bible study or here on Sunday morning, um, you know, I remember one time we had, uh, which we probably will this year too, uh, we had uh, communion during one of the, I don't know if it was Easter or Christmas services that we had, special service, and someone in the congregation said, well, it's not the first Sunday of the, of the month. You know, why are we having communion? And I said, well, it doesn't have to be the first Sunday of the month. See, even doing it once a, a month on the first Sunday of the month would be, become a ritual. So we've got to kind of break our, our mindset out of that. But when it comes to the Lord's table, you know, I want you to understand this morning, and this is just kind of a little overview of, of why we do what we do at the Lord's table. Um, it's known as an ordinance in our church or... Uh, a sacrament that was ordained by the Lord, you know, and, and coming from a Catholic background, I kind of cringe at the, the sacrament word, but I looked it up in Webster, and he defines it as a formal religious act that is sacred as a sign or symbol of a spiritual reality. As long as you don't add anything to that, <laughs> you know, it's not a means of grace. By, by taking communion, you don't get more saved, or you don't get saved. It's not, a, it's not that. That's why we call it an ordinance, all right, there's certain churches that believe the sacraments dispel God's grace, and that's not correct. Um, Augustine said that it is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. I'm even okay with that because he uses the word symbol and sign. Um, but when we come to the Lord's Supper, we should look first to ourselves, and I want to look at these first two points with you, and then also look to Christ. So important. And I think even as we start this Christmas season and all the stuff is going on around us, the hustle and bustle of everything, we need to be reminded, this, you know what, first of all, we need to look to ourselves. Don't lose sight of the fact that we're called to serve him, that we're called to be an example to those around us. And then we need to continually look at Christ, find Christ in Christmas. Um, but the first point there, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we need to look to ourselves. This is spelled out for us. Uh, in our text, in, in Luke, it tells us, um, but as the Lord and his disciples met for this final evening, remember this was their last meal together uh, before his crucifixion, and he dropped this bombshell in the middle of the, the meal, uh, the middle of the supper, in verse 20, uh, chapter 22 of Luke, verse 21, he says, Behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. Uh, I mean, this was just unthinkable. And they knew that the, 
Jewish religious leaders opposed Jesus and the disciples, but one of the 12? Come on, Jesus, are you serious? One sitting there at that moment eating the Passover with Jesus, and you wonder, how could this be? And so Luke records how this news led them to this kind of ridiculous dispute, which of them was the greatest, in verses 21 to 24 of Luke 22. He says there, Say, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes, look what it says, as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. And then that led to a dispute that arose among them, that which one was the greatest. I mean, kind of unbelievable, these disciples at times. They were missing the whole point. And before the, the controversy broke out, actually Mark, if you look at Mark chapter 14, verse 19, it records that the disciples did something a bit uncharacteristic. Each one questioned his own allegiance to Christ. And Mark tells us that they went around saying, surely not I. Matthew, uh, basically in Matthew, it, it informs us that even Judas asked that question. Matthew 26, 25. In the case of the eleven, it was a sincere question, and it reflected their confidence in their own uh, spiritual strength. Hey, it's not not me. But really, in Judas's case, it was a hypocritical act. It was a hypocritical attempt to cover up his own deceitful heart. I mean, isn't it weird that when they're sitting around the table and Jesus says, "One of you is going to betray me," they all didn't look at Judas and go, "You're the one. We had our eye on you." No. See, that's how deceptive sin can be. That's how deceptive situations can be. Instead, each one looked soberly within himself and said, Lord, is it I? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 to 22, the Apostle Paul tells us, before we partake of the Lord's table together here even this morning, he wants us to do just that. He wants us to examine our own hearts. He says if we don't do this, in 1 Corinthians, he says we eat and drink judgment onto ourselves, by which he means discipline from the Lord that can even include physical illness and maybe even death. There are basically several areas that we should examine ourselves, but the first area is our attitudes. Our attitudes. In verse 17 of Luke 22, it says, And he took the cup... And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it uh, among yourselves. Um, Jesus began the supper by giving thanks. He had given thanks. That Greek phrase is actually transliterated Eucharist. That's what it means. It means to give thanks. Jesus gave thanks for the cup and he passed it among the disciples. Luke simply has the cup and the bread. And, and Matthew and Mark and, and 1 Corinthians have a different kind of account. But the, the point is clear. Um, that there was a cup, some bread, and then another cup. They actually had two cups. The Jewish Passover, there were four cups. Some say three, but Luke records probably the first and the third cup. And so the first cup that they would do, take during the Passover was accompanied by a prayer, Blessed are you, Yahweh, our God, who has created the fruit of the vine. It was a prayer of thanksgiving for God's provision, for his salvation. And Jesus introduced it by saying for the second time that this would be the last time that he would partake of this celebration until it's been fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then the second cup followed the explanation for why the day was celebrated and they'd sing halal psalms and different things. And then they'd come to the meal that itself. And Jesus gave thanks again for the bread. And here he kind of re 
interpreted the elements of the Passover by showing that they're pointing toward his impending death. He wanted his disciples to know that something's going to happen here. He instructed them that in the future they would do this, what, in remembrance of me. So he wasn't going to be around. And then the third cup, the cup of blessing, followed the main course. It says in the same way, which means that he also gave thanks for the cup. And here Jesus kind of explained that this cup symbolized the new covenant in his blood poured out for you. The final cup, we don't have recorded in New Testament accounts, but generally it was drunk in connection with the singing of the final psalms that they would sing together. And that was kind of the agenda that they went through. But when you come back to the point here that this is something that we want to remember the sacrifice of Christ for. And it's really transformed by that word thanksgiving um, and, and joy. This isn't a, a, a sober time. It's a time where we look kind of at our own hearts and we want to look very carefully and make sure that we're, we're good with the Lord and everything is, is clear. If there's no sin, we need to confess it and, and thank him for his forgiveness. But this isn't the time to, to come and you know, have a long face and drawn out and oh boy, whoa. No, this is the whole purpose that Jesus came. He was born to die. And if he didn't die, there's no way we would ever even be here today celebrating it all. John Piper said this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. You know, and that's one of the main ways that we can glorify God is by enjoying him. You know, you see some of these Christians today that just, you know, even, even some Christians around Christmas time, of all times of the year, you think that, man, they'd have some joy. I, I don't like the malls. I don't like all the lights. I don't like this. It's a waste of energy. They just, and you're a Christian? Hello? I mean, what a wonderful time. You know, I'm not into all the Santa Claus and all the, the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and stuff. But you know what? If you can talk at all, somehow you can turn that around to Christ. <laughs> and they give you a wide open door. You know, every time you see a light, think, hey, he's the light of the world. Explain that to people, what that means. Talk to them about that. We need to kind of get out of this, you know, woe is me kind of mentality. So when we come together, even at the Lord's table, yeah, it, it was a horrible thing what happened to Jesus. But you know what? If that didn't happen, we wouldn't have forgiveness. We wouldn't be able to celebrate anything. The Lord's Supper is a time for us to thank God for his great salvation that he provided for us through the death of his son and rejoice in his grace that he's given to us, not at a cost, it costs Jesus, but it doesn't cost us. It's free. It should be a time of hope because Jesus here mentions twice about his coming kingdom. I, mean, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to dying not just to rot in the ground somewhere, but I mean, you're going to be in glory. You're going to be in heaven. You're going to be with your Savior. You're going to be complete, whole. All the aches, the pains, all the issues will be gone. I mean, that's a time of extreme blessing. And so we need to be reminded of that. And that comes out of our attitude. You know, don't get so caught up with everything that your attitude, it sours your attitude during this time of year. Of anybody, Christians should be the most joyful people this time of year than anybody that doesn't have anything else to be joyful about. Second thing is we should examine not just our attitudes, but our actions. Jesus shocked the disciples here by announcing the hand of one who was going to betray him was at the table. And you have to remember, back then, you know, when you had someone over and you shared a meal with them, it was a, a cultural act of friendship. It still is today, of loyalty. There's some countries you go into, if they invite you in for tea, or, or they invite you, we even saw this in Turkey, they'll invite you in for tea, and whether you like the tea or not, you, you went in and you had it. Because it would be an insult for them to turn it down. Sometimes they offer you food and you're looking at it like, I'm not even going to ask. Okay, thanks. <laughs> you know, you don't even know what it is. But you know what? You're going to eat it. Because you want to be courteous to them. You, and it shows them that you're loyal to them, that you have a friendship with them. To betray one with whom you had eaten was a terrible thing. Let alone to betray the Lord Jesus. 
And not just Judas, but also the rest of the twelve would shortly abandon Jesus, even in their own confusion and fear. Not to Judas's extent, but they did. They abandoned him. I hope that none of us here are in danger of betraying the Savior. None of us, I pray, can say that we would ever think of such a thing. And yet, at the same time, none of us are immune from that terrible sin. Just like the apostles, we're all prone to our selfishness, to our sinful behavior. Like them, we're prone to pride that actually in this time led them to an argument about who is the greatest, if you can believe that. It's just so weird. Is there anything selfish or prideful maybe we've done that we haven't confessed yet? Did we dishonor the Savior or the Lord by any of our actions in our lives? Now's the time to pause, to confess that. See, some people believe that if, if that's the case, well, then you shouldn't partake of the Lord's Supper. I think if you're a believer, okay, you have forgiveness in Christ. That's why Paul instructs us to examine ourselves and then to partake. doesn't mean you run home going, oh, I can't take communion because I sinned last week. No. Your sins are covered if you're a Christian, if you're trusted in Christ. They're covered by the blood of the Lamb. If the Spirit convicts you of some sin that you have not confessed, you simply bring it to Him. That's why the Bible says that, you know what, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we partake. There's forgiveness available for every sin in the blood of Jesus Christ when you come to Him in repentance. The Bible says He'll pardon you. He'll make you clean. So we need to not only examine our attitudes and our actions, but lastly here, also our affections. Our affections, especially this time of year. Jesus told the twelve in verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. He uses here a Hebrew expression that literally means, I have desired with desire. It refers to a strong inner Desire that Jesus, on Jesus' part, to share with these men whom he gathered around him and spent these years with and loved to the uttermost. His great love would shortly lead the spotless Son of God to the, the worst possible place of suffering that he could ever even endure. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, the man who was perfect, sinless in every way, it says that he became sin on our behalf. I mean, there's no greater love in the universe than the love that led Jesus Christ, our Savior, to offer himself as a penalty for our sins. And so the Lord's Supper is a time when we examine our affections Stop and ask yourself, has your heart been right before God? Have we lived each day by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me, as Galatians 2.20 says? Does his great love for me motivate me to turn away from sin and to deny myself in service for him to be filled with praise and gratitude for his great salvation? Does his sacrificial love prompt me to ask forgiveness of each member of my family and even of the family of God who maybe we have offended in some way? In a sermon on the Lord's Supper, Spurgeon mentions a Mrs. Too Good. She made a mistake about the week that communion was to be observed. So she did not play cards during that week. She kept herself wonderfully pure. On Sunday, when she found that she had made a blunder as to the time of communion, she said she had wasted the whole week in getting ready. <laughs> See, that should not be our attitude. 
about forsaking sin. Rather, out of love for our Savior, who gave himself for us on the cross and earnestly desires upon desire fellowship with us, we should gladly forsake all sin and come ready to his table. When we come to the table, we need to first look at our self. Well, secondly, when we come to the table, we also need to look at Christ. We need to look at Christ. Uh, because I don't know about you, but if I look at myself too long, <laughs> I'm in a world of hurt. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You, you just get depressed. Um, for every look at yourself, someone wisely put, take two looks at Christ. <laughs> every time you look at yourself, look back at the Savior. And that's the problem with a lot of believers today, to be honest. They get so focused on their sin, they get so focused on themselves, they're so inward focused, they forget to look at the Savior. I mean, I'd be depressed too if that was the only thing I was looking at. We need to remember that Christ is there. He took the brunt of our sin, the whole of our sin upon himself, paid for it in whole and in its entirety. The point of looking to ourselves is to make us despair. So we don't trust in our own righteousness. See, if you look at yourself long enough, you're going to realize, wow, there's, there's some nasty things here. And that should push us toward Christ. And as we see the sinfulness of our own hearts, we should be driven to cling to Christ and the cross. Because he alone is our only hope. He alone is our salvation. Four things here about our Savior. Look to Christ who sovereignly laid down his life of his own accord. The theme there of, of Luke 22, 7 to 13 is Christ's control over the circumstances of the impending death. We don't know for sure whether Jesus had prearranged all these preparations for the room, for the supper, whether these things were just done supernaturally. We don't know. He didn't want, obviously, Judas to learn of the location of the supper because he wanted this supper to go through. He didn't want to be interrupted. Both the Lord's Supper and the Upper Room Discourse, though, uh, they, they really uh, uh, show us so much of the important teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples. And so Jesus here arranged for every male servant to carry this this water jug, something only women usually would do, as a sign to direct Peter and John to this unnamed man who allowed them to use the upper room. Jesus also was in control over his betrayal, as verse 22 emphasizes, the Son of Man is going to be, is going as it has been determined. Judas may have surprised the 11 when he got up, but he didn't surprise Jesus. I think, in fact, as early as even the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus announced that one of the, the 12 would betray him. See that in John chapter 6, verse 70 and 71. See, Scripture goes out of its way, beloved, to, to show the sovereignty of Christ, that he wasn't foiled in his attempt to set up his kingdom by this betrayal of Judas and the plots of the Jewish leaders. They were responsible for their horrible sin. And yet they fulfilled God's predetermined plan. We see that over and over again. Jesus testified, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. John 10. His death on the cross was no accident. It was what he was born for. The evil man of Jesus' time didn't somehow get an upper hand on him and foil his plot. No. Christ's death was part of God's decree before the foundation of the world. I think it was John MacArthur who put out a series on who killed Jesus. And the answer was God killed Jesus. Because that's what Scripture says. The Lord's Supper should cause us to marvel at his sovereign grace 
from beginning to end. You see it over and over again. Just look at your own life, how you come to Christ. God's sovereign hand is in that. The second thing is we need to look to Christ who knows our hearts. He knows our hearts. Jesus knew what was in Judas's heart. See that in, in verses 31 34. He knew even what was in Peter's heart in, that, in those texts. Nothing is hidden from his sight, nothing. That's why the Bible says don't try to cover up your sin. <laughs> Do you think God doesn't see it? God sees it. That's why he says confess it. I've already paid for it. It's paid for it in its entirety on the cross. Just, just come to me and confess it. Confess it means simply you're saying the same thing about it that God says. That it's wrong. That you regret doing it. That you're repentant. That you don't want to do it again. You're turning away from it. You're not running into it. And so when we come to the table knowing that he knows everything in our hearts, we should really make sure that we're confessing it all to him. Because he's more than ready to forgive us and to restore us. Thirdly, look to Christ whose sacrificial death is the heart of the Christian faith. I mean, the central event of the Old Testament was the Exodus, when God miraculously delivered his people from the bondage in from bondage to Egypt there. And, and the Passover celebrated and rehearsed that event for each generation. When you look at it, kind of the Exodus was kind of a, a type of what Christ would do in delivering his people from the bondage of sin through his death on the cross. And the Lord's Supper replaces the Passover in celebrating and rehearsing that central event in all history, the cross, so that it remains at the center of our faith and our thinking. And so when Jesus took the bread and he said to his disciples, this is my body, none of them understood him to mean that it literally became his body. They didn't think that, as the Catholic Church teaches He was still there in his body in the room. They understood that it represents his body. It reminds us of the eternal son of God who took on a human body, lived a sinless life in that body. That's why we use a form of unleavened bread because leaven represents a kind of a sinfulness. Unleavened bread is a picture of his sinlessness. And he bore our sins in that body when he died on the cross. And the cup, the grape juice that we drink, containing the wine that that he had, represents the shed blood of Christ. And just as the angel of death would pass over every Israeli home where the blood was applied to the doorposts from the Passover lamb, so everyone who has appropriated the, the blood of Christ by faith has their sins forgiven. Matthew 26, 27 records Jesus as saying, drink from it, all of you. See, the Bible nowhere tells us that communion is just for a special class of believers who are called the priests or, you know, they're the only ones that are to drink from the cup. No, every believer should partake of the bread and the cup. Christ says, this cup which is poured out for you Verse 20 there is the new covenant in my blood. Just as the old covenant was instituted by a blood sacrifice, so was the new. The word covenant doesn't refer to an agreement here um, between two equals, but to an arrangement established by one being God. The other party, man, cannot alter it. He can only accept it or reject it. That's why when you come to Christ, you have to come in the prescribed way. You can't say, well, I'm going to go in this religious route and I'm going to do this. No, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Any man who comes to the Father has to come through me. He said it. The Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice of the body and blood of Christ. When we take this bread and pass it around in this cup... We don't bless it in order that it become the literal blood and the literal body of Christ, as some teach. That's heresy. That's not found in the Bible anywhere. 
It's a remembrance of Christ's one sacrifice. We don't need to sacrifice him over and over and over again. It's a done deal. It's done. That's what we read in Hebrews. Also, we need to look to Christ whose resurrection and promised return assures us of the efficacy of his death. See, Jesus solemnly assures us and the disciples that he will not eat the Passover meal or drink of the fruit of the vine again until it's fulfilled in his kingdom. He says that in verses 16 and 18 there. Some debate whether or not the Passover will be celebrated in the millennial kingdom or not. They don't know. Uh, It could refer to a future celebration of the Lord's Supper as a fulfillment of the Passover. But whatever he meant, Jesus here predicted his resurrection, and he predicted that he's going to come again in power and glory to establish his kingdom. And trust me, you want to come to Jesus now when he's offering you salvation. You don't want to come before him as judge, because you're going to be guilty, because we're all guilty. And unless our sin is dealt with, we're going to be condemned to hell, rightfully so. But when we come to Christ as our Savior, he says, I don't want you to go to hell. I'm going to forgive your sins. I paid the price. You don't need to go there. It wasn't created for us. It was created for Satan and the demons. Because he was raised from the dead and because we know that he's coming again, we can know what his death accomplished and what he promised. And so he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we think of Christmas, we think of the birth of Christ. And that's what we celebrate. We celebrate his birthday. But don't ever forget the purpose for which Christ was born, and that was simply to die, to die for the sins of the world, to die for our sins. And when he died on that cross, he died a very specific death. He didn't die a general death for everybody. That's not what he died. He died a very specific death. His sacrifice on the, sin, on the cross was for you, for me, for those, all those who would put their faith, their trust in Christ as his Lord and Savior. If your heart is a bit cold this morning toward the Savior, maybe you haven't been looking at his picture frequently enough. Or carefully enough. Maybe you need to take some time to remind yourself of his love for you. You need to come to this table. You need to look at your attitudes, your actions, your affections. You need to confess any apathy maybe that you have toward the Lord's Supper as a routine ritual. Turn away from any sins that are known to you at this time so that you can keep your fellowship with the Savior close. And then look to Christ who freely gave himself for you and let your heart be moved by his great love as we see that in the cross, in his sacrifice for us. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we pray that as we do come before this communion time, that our hearts would be drawn closer to you. Lord, if there's any brother or sister in Christ here who, for whatever reason, is distant from you, maybe they're holding sin in their heart, they're ashamed, they need to confess it to you. You can do that right now in the quietness of this moment. If you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you just confess that sin to him, you ask him, Tell him, thank you for forgiving this sin. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Give me a a new attitude toward this sin that I've held on to for so long. Help me to turn away from it. Help me to hate it. Cause it to be displeasing to me. He'll answer that prayer. If you're here this morning and you have yet to put your faith and trust in Christ, I pray that today would be the day that you cry out, God, please, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help my unbelief. Help me to believe in these words that I'm hearing of this free gift of salvation 
for all eternity. Not because of something I do, but because of what you've done for me on the cross. He'll answer that prayer today. As you turn from your sin, turn to the Savior. He desires you to have that relationship with him. Father, we ask that you would just, as we sing a couple songs together and prepare our hearts, Lord, that you would remind us this time of year that when you were born on that day so many years ago, I'm sure it was a joyous event for Mary and Joseph, even though it was under hard circumstances. Whenever a baby's born, whenever a new life comes into this world, it's a joyous event. But I can't help thinking, even as a baby, you knew one day that you were going to die a cruel death for a world that, for the most part, wouldn't even appreciate it. And Father, we thank you for your gift of your Son. And Jesus, we thank you for your love and your commitment to stay the course and to carry out your Father's plan for us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.